Hello, everyone. This is Heidi Trost. I am the host of Human Centered Security. And today I have doc- Dr. Margaret Cunningham, who is an experimental psychologist and the principal research scientist for human behavior at Force Points X Lab. So in this role, she serves as the behavioral science subject matter expert in an interdisciplinary security team driving the development of human-centric security solutions, which is just awesome. Music to my ears. Previously, she supported the Human Systems Integration Branch at the Department of Homeland Security. And this bio has a lot of big words in it, which is... (laughs) Which was really difficult for me to get through on this Friday afternoon. Um, But... uh, Margaret, it is so nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to do, uh, unpack some of this stuff with you. Yeah, Heidi, I'm really excited too. And um, I'm sure that on a Friday afternoon, interdisciplinary is the last thing that we want to say while being recorded. <laughs> Agreed. Yes. And Margaret, um, just let me know that she hates the discipline of UX. Uh, oh. So we're, we're off to a great start. No, no, no. I love UX. I love everyone who does it. And I love the results of good work in the area. I just personally don't want to be the one doing it. Um, <laughs> so very clarification, very important clarification. <laughs> <laughs> so what led you into the information security industry? I had a very long and winding road. Um, I started out working in medical human factors uh, while I was in graduate school, kind of serendipitously ended up at um, a consulting firm where I, where I started doing some work for um, Homeland Security and their human systems integration branch. And um, human systems integration is broader than human factors. Um, And I got a lot of exposure into uh, kind of understanding big picture issues in integrating physical security, different types of sensors, um, just uh, so many different things that made me start to focus heavily on the human components of security and understanding how human performance can impact risk. And I I happened to be needing to move to Austin, Texas. And I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And I I found some like-minded folks over at Force Point who were crazy enough to invite a psychologist into their team to help with their um, behavioral analytics and security software. Um, So (laughs) it's been a journey. And um, I've just met the most amazing people along the way. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the work that you do at Forcepoint. And I feel like I should know exactly what an experimental psychologist does, but I kind of don't. So can you explain what that means? (laughs) So I'm actually, to make it a little bit weirder, I am an applied experimental psychologist, which just means that um, I focus very heavily on measuring human stuff. In my case, I I focused on memory and attention, um, but not so much in a laboratory setting, much more in the real world. So, you know, in a psychological lab, we have all these tips and tools and tricks and we control everything. Um, But that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to find ways to uh, measure human stuff in the real world where nothing is controlled uh, we don't usually have the luxury of uh, shutting the door and putting like the EEG sensors on someone. Um, <laughs> so 
it really is my background really is in uh, measurement, if that makes any sense to you. Actually, it makes perfect sense to me. And I'm going to kind of veer us off uh, in a different lane for a second because oh, that's super interesting <laughs> because in in the UX realm, sorry to bring you back to the UX realm, oh, but we're, we're trying to, we're always trying to figure out how to measure things, you know, in the wild, right? Like, and that's incredibly difficult to do as you can probably imagine and and know, Um, you know, but when you're trying to measure like engagement, like what does engagement mean? You know, and all the things that you want someone to do on the website that, you know, with a particular goal in mind, like that gets very messy or like, how do you measure delight? You know, you want the the experience to be delightful, which like, so (laughs) I know this probably seems so ridiculous. No, it does not because um, I had if you ever did the life-changing magic of tidying up the Marie thing where something sparks joy. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So that's sort of like the UX delight thing. And <laughs> yeah. I know really. Right. And so it's like, well, you know it when you see it, I'm like, right. okay, but can you measure it? I don't know. Yeah. And um, I was doing something terrible. I was helping to Marie someone else's shoes. Um, someone who will remain nameless. And <laughs> Uh, the person walked in and I was sitting in a pile of shoes and I said, you can only keep the shoes that spark joy. (laughs) And the person said, if I waited for a pair of shoes to spark joy, I'd be barefoot for the rest of my life. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I'm, you know, strange metaphor here, but it makes me think about the technology that we're forced to use. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And how maybe delight might not be the best measure for that. Totally. Yeah. And I have arguments with UX people about this all the time, you know, but, but the idea is like, we're not creating websites or software as a service or mobile apps, like just for the fun of it, right? There, there's a business objective of involved. Maybe, maybe delight isn't the right word that we need to be using. What are some of the other things that we can measure when it comes to p- human behavior or human perceptions and, you know, all these other things and, and how they feel is part of that. But how do you measure that? And, and does it, does it connect to the business objectives? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, um, you know, kind of to, to circle back and put a little bit of emphasis on security. I do, I do end up working very closely with people on analytics. And a few years ago, I partnered with one of my coworkers who is a very talented machine learning expert, uh, probably like 5 million times smarter than I am. And I, I asked her to go and interview, of course, here I am doing sort of quasi UX research, like I said, I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> and we went and we interviewed a lot of the people who are working as security analysts who were using our products. And um, we talked to them about uh, things that they would like to see when we provide them with more complicated analytics. Mm-hmm. So behavioral analytics, very complicated. If you want to see every single facet of a person, uh, by the way, not possible. Um, <laughs> what would you want to know? And it turns out that um, these users, these analysts have very specific things that they want. Uh, they do not want a representation of a risk score that can't be explained. They don't want to feel like 
the um, algorithm is making decisions for them. <laughs> um, they Go want figure. to know. Yeah, I know. Right. And they want to know that what's going on in the invisible mathematics is ethical. And I found that um, really, really uh, kind of a critical finding while I have been in this field um, is how passionate a lot of our analysts are about uh, really understanding what they're seeing, especially when it comes to people. So you have a very unique perspective with your psychology background. That's one of the reasons that I was dying to talk to you. So from that perspective, what do you think is the, what are the biggest challenges facing the security industry? So I've been on a kick right now where I keep seeing people um, post about dumb, dumb users or like they have the, uh, that cartoon where it says like there's a firewall in one corner of the boxing ring and then Dave or like <laughs> dumb Dave in the corner. And I'm like, oh my goodness. You know what? First and foremost, we are all dumb Dave sometimes. Right. There's not one like static period of time where, you know, we can all be performing a hundred percent at our very best. And I, I think that we forget that sometimes, like I, I guarantee, I mean, I have a child who's almost one years old. And, um, when I first went back to work, there were probably days that I was like sitting at my computer completely glazed over and hadn't slept. Right. Um, that's not my best self. So we are not our best self all the time and really sort of, um, starting to peel away that, that phrasing that people are the weakest link. Um, it's human error. It's human error, uh, as the root of all cybersecurity issues. Um, that kind of drives me nuts, honestly. (laughs) Same. Yeah. That's, and that's a really good point. Um, I have seen that cartoon as well. So, you know, it, well, it like sort of makes you laugh at the same time. You're like, I, yeah, I'm that, I am that dumb user. <laughs> and they're like, I didn't know my name was Dave, but it seems <laughs> like it is. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, the kind of, if we want to talk about that from a psychological perspective, um, you know, we have limited resources, right? Like people have limited capacity to remember things. We have limited capacity to pay attention and those factors, like human limitations, um, make it so that we might make a mistake. We might forget something. And that includes clicking on the wrong links. Um, that includes entering our credentials into a website that, you know, on a quick glance seems okay. Um, and there's not really much that we can do about that from at least not the way we've been trying to do it so far. So telling people about it is great. But, you know, sorry to say, I could sit through, you know, 700 hours of security awareness training per year. It's not going to improve my memory and it's not going to help me pay attention when I'm completely distracted or exhausted or what have you. Um, it's, it's really fascinating, honestly. It is fascinating. And, you know, you think of all the different aspects that that lead to problems in the, in the security realm, like you were talking about, um, you know, we can only, we can only take on so much. We can only remember so much. We're tired. You know, things are going on in our lives. We can only pay attention to so much, um, you know, all these limitations that, 
every single human has contributes to some of you know the security problems that we ha- that we have um, and that we face today. Can we? Can you start by just defining? human factors. Uh, cause that's kind of, and I know that that's like the most impossible yeah. task ever, but <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to get better at it because, um, first of all, I'm a human factors champion, like diehard status. So, um, you know, the more I can talk about it, the better, but big picture, um, human factors is very interdisciplinary and it's also very scientific. Um, the whole purpose is to understand human performance within a system. And that could be anything. So it could be um, something like a security system, or it could be, you know, aviation has a huge human factors uh, communities, as does uh, healthcare. But anyway, um, so how can we better understand people performing within these bigger systems? This actually means that we have to spend a lot of time finding ways to evaluate both performance and the design of everything from, you know, the computers that we use to the processes that we use uh, and more. (laughs) And it's, it's not so much because we want to change people. And, you know, I, I might argue that you can't really change people. It's more about um, creating systems and creating designs that can mitigate the risk of human limitations. (laughs) And, you know, we can go a little bit further and say, um, you know, we can break it down across different types of human factors, focus areas. Um, We have everything from, you know, the, the physical design of office chairs and monitors and uh, space shuttles, huge challenge there, to uh, the more cognitive components like stress, mental workload, forgetfulness, attention issues, uh, response to alerts and alarms, hello security, uh, to the really big picture organizational things like what policies and processes and structures impact performance. Um, when I think about this, one of the first things I think about is the complexity of um, patient handoffs in hospitals, Mm -hmm. you know, and those are just, you know, they're guided by policies. They're guided by uh, the number of people who are available, communication. It's, you know, (laughs) if you ever want to read into it, it, there's a lot of really great, great literature about the human factors of patient handoffs. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a ton of uh, parallels to the cybersecurity industry. Yeah, I mean, I have never had the privilege of sitting in a in a security center SOC, um, at least not for any uh, significant period of time. And I do know that the beginning and end of shift is is a big deal. Um, how do you communicate what you've seen? You know, how do you make that visible for someone else? It's definitely on that same human human performance level. Yeah. So what I, what I want to dive into, uh, a little bit deeper, we talked about the human factors analysis and classification system and how that is just like a behemoth, um, thing that a behemoth framework that, uh, we just don't have time to talk about in, in one episode. (laughs) One piece of it that I think would be really interesting to hear you talk about is the errors and violation 
violations piece, which is if you're looking at the graphic, it's it's that last piece. So I'll I'll link to a a graphic of of it so that p- folks can learn more about it. But I don't know if I have like a specific question, but like can you can you <laughs> yeah, just like you know what? Guide I us can. I can actually just go ahead and dive in on that. <laughs> so for people who are not familiar with the this classification system, um, I'm basically only going to be talking about uh, what happens like at the keyboard, for instance, like right when someone makes the mistake or right when someone breaks the rules. And, and, and that's very much like the, if you're thinking top down or bottom up, it's the bottom up. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of different types of mistakes and errors that people make. Um, for instance, we might make a decision based on kind of the wrong set of information. I mean, hello, bizarre emails that we respond to when we shouldn't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We might make errors based on just not really paying attention or, you know, having little memory issues. Um, And then we also make some mistakes based on our own personal perception of the real world. And, you know, this, this framework came from aviation and the perceptual errors uh, referenced for aviation are very different than the perceptual errors that we think about in cybersecurity. But um, I think we're all aware of, you know, really, really sophisticated deep fake videos and a lot of um, difficulty figuring out what's real, what's true. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's, it's a really big deal. Um, and so the types of mistakes and errors we make based on our perception, um, I, I really believe those are going to become more and more prominent in the security field. And, um, you know, there are a lot of different cool videos out there that can highlight perceptual issues like that. And, you know, Heidi, I might have to give you some links after this. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, how can we deal with that from an organizational level, right? Like if our users are perceiving something to be real and true and interacting with it as if they can trust it, Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, I yeah. What what can we do about that? And um, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for um not really allowing it, right? Um, but then again, I can I can lead into the uh let's control it and not allow people to interact with things or do things. Um I can skip right over to the next part of this um part of the framework, which is uh violations and rule breaking. <laughs> because right. you know what happens when you layer a bunch of security on top of someone? Yep. They find ways around it. They sure do. Um, you know, if I can't, you know, I don't even want to admit the number of times somebody said, forget it. I'll just text you. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, okay. Right. So that's, that's not quite right. So, you know, as we're trying to come up with creative ways to deal with like decision errors and skill-based errors and perceptual errors, um, we don't really want to start making it so that we are increasing workarounds and rule breaking. (laughs) You know, as a behavioral analysis person and working in this field, I focus a lot of my time on understanding the ways and the reasons for, you know, why people are breaking the rules. Yeah. For some reason I have like a vision in my head of like, you know, like corralling people like (laughs) into the right direction, but like not forcing them. Like it's not a use of force, but it's just like, here you go. Like, nope, this way. (laughs) Let's just ease into this. I don't know why I just thought of that. No, no. I mean, and there's a whole school of thought on like, 
you know, using nudge, nudge theory to get people to change their behaviors and things like that. And this is maybe not something I've admitted before, but I I genuinely don't believe that we can change people's behaviors. (laughs) Yeah, well, we can. I think the the larger point is like it's trying to do that is a much harder thing to do than to just make the system better. Right. right? To work with the person as opposed to forcing them to do something that they don't want to do. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny though, the the number of different types of users and people and situations and environments make it very difficult because we cannot design for everyone. And you know, that's where you get into these. It, this is where it becomes more of a business decision where you have to pick who you're really designing towards. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And, and that means that if people who don't fall into that category of either like expert user, we'll say, um, then they may be more prone to making these errors or they may be more prone to breaking certain rules. So, well, what I'm thinking of is like in, and this is just, a, this is an example I use over and over again, cause it's just, it's something that everybody understands in the sense of an IOT device or like your router, you take it home from the store and the first thing you need to do is to change the default password. Well, if people don't know that those things exist, the best thing for you to do is to have, you know, like a setup wizard for lack of a, a better term, but like you're guiding them, you know, to do that as part of the setup process because they're not going to do it otherwise. Like those are the types of things I'm thinking about, like in in terms of leading the user in the in the safer direction like here's what we're going to do you know there's really no way an other way around it you know because this is really important oh for sure and and i think those things are absolutely required and excellent um and, and they do do their job um you know i i i sort of veered down the avenue of thinking about how we still have to change our passwords every 90 days even though it goes against the nist standard right right like <laughs> <laughs> and then why that impacts people's security, mm-hmm. you know, and it really does. There's a lot that we can talk about in this because I don't think anyone solved the problem. Yeah, no, cause it's, well, and this is like a human factors uh, or human centered design principle is like getting to the root of the problem as opposed to just like trying to layer on, you know, different controls and, you know, hoping that that works. But like you said, that's usually when people start circumventing the controls. So, but yeah, like trying to really understand, you know, what's at the root of this and can we fix that? Because then maybe we're fixing the larger issue. Yeah, and passwords, yeah. I think are, are key. <laughs> key I know, right? Solar wins, one, two, three. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I... I kind of love a good root cause analysis. Um, I, I know that's sort of silly, but I, I really do love them, especially when we can integrate humans into it, um, which we don't always, for, for big like technical things or a big breach, we don't always have a human factors person who, who can go in and, and, and kind of dig into the root causes of these incidents. Um, but I, I really do love it. I think there's a lot to learn from um, going beyond the superficial things that we see um, they're definitely more a symptom than the cause of the big problem. Yeah. So, um, you know, in, you know, if you dig into the same human factors and analysis classification system, um, you know, I've only really talked about the, the part that we can see when in reality, the beauty of this um, specific classification 
system is that um, it focuses much more on what contributed to that observable, you know, violation or error. So that's one of the reasons that it really struck me and was super, super interesting to me because it's, it's something from like a human centered design perspective that it, it just all makes sense. Let's go back to errors and violations. I'm wondering if you can talk through some of the different types of errors and uh, talk about rule breaking in a little bit more detail. Oh, yeah. Okay. So actually, I will spend a little bit more time on rule breaking. Um, You know, when we think about breaking rules, there are certain things, certain rules that we break all the time. And then there are certain rules that we don't break very often, or we only break once. Um, And it's not necessarily that we're breaking rules for a good reason or a bad reason, Um, you could break a big rule one time because you're responding to an emergency, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But (laughs) there tends to be certain types of rules that if you're breaking them, um, it's indicative of some deeper problems. Um, Maybe it's a deeper problem because you are a disgruntled employee and you are you know, creating ways to retaliate against your company by sabotaging code. Um, (laughs) Maybe it's that you are angry because you've got a terrible performance review and you're planning on leaving. So you start stealing and stockpiling data so that when you leave, you can take it with you. Um, You know, there's all sorts of different things that lead to these violations. And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the meaning that we get out of it is how many times you break the rule and what the rule was. (laughs) Uh, How do you guard against false positives? So a lot of our current issues in this area is that um, we say it's good or bad, one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Um, So, Maybe I'm a very risky user. Maybe I have access to a lot of different things. Maybe I explore a lot. Maybe I save a lot. Maybe I email externally a lot, whatever it is. Um, But just because I fall more towards the bad pile doesn't mean I'm actually bad. (laughs) So what we're always constantly trying to do is... um, be a little bit more understanding of the gray space in between good and bad or whatever you want to call it, because we have to get beyond um, putting people into this false dichotomy of, you know, good people and bad people on your network. Uh, so, and, and that's what we're trying to do with, with some of these behavioral analytics. Yeah, that's really cool. It's, <laughs> I've got to say, it's a humongous challenge. Um, and, and one of the big challenges is that um, each type of domain has different um, kind of thresholds for acceptable behavior. So, you know, some people are pretty chill, do what you want. Uh, other types of organizations, like maybe financial institutions, are very stringent in their rules. So, um, kind of having a way to create some dynamic context that makes sense for a specific application is um, kind of an ongoing challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, I mean, I will bring it back to UX. You know, how in the world do we represent this, right? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm totally. Well, you know, and that you were talking about um, interviewing some of your customers and like what what's most helpful to them, you know, what's the information that they need, you know, at a specific moment in time and like how does context play into that and, you know, not just wanting a number and and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that's all that's all a UX challenge. Yeah. And it's it's funny because I, you know, one of the reasons I struggle with UX is not because of what UX offers. It's that you're not invited to the party early enough. Yeah. And it's so frustrating to me because, you know, uh, you know, maybe you're a designer, maybe you don't really know much about software architecture or, uh, you know, risk calculations, but it's so critical for designers and UX folks and, you know, interface people to be involved at that very first meeting at the kickoff so that they can start building a common mental model of what it is that, um, these software engineers and other people are trying to build um, because frankly, they have to represent it. <laughs> I a hundred percent agree. And that's like one of the, you know, underlying reasons that I started the podcast, because I think that I want to attract UX people to cybersecurity, not only because I think it's awesome, but because I think we have a lot to offer. And I feel like, not that you have to be a cybersecurity expert, but like, if you know, you know, enough, you can make much more educated suggestions to the rest of the team, you know, and, and implement better solutions. So I think, you know, all of us working together, psychologists, UX people, you know, people on the technical side, I think that's really important for the field to progress. Yeah. And, you know, I would argue that it's really um, a positive to come into the field with your own expertise that isn't necessarily focused on security. It is getting a little bit better, but it, it, you know, in my experience and from, from what I see, it, it is still sort of like an insular community at times. And um, because of that, there are some kind of groupthink things going on where like they understand a specific problem in a specific way and try and solve it with the tools that they know. And so when we expand the universe of security to include people with um, a much different tool set, uh, a much different mindset, then we can get a lot more creative about our problem solving and um, kind of start creating a new common language and understanding about uh, security. Yeah. And you actually said one of my favorite terms, mental models. Uh, it's something that I bring up a lot. And the idea is that, you know, mental models are, are mental models. They're not it's not necessarily that my mental model is right and yours is wrong. It's just how we think about things. And, you know, sometimes technical people think about things differently than the end user. And in a security context, that can be very dangerous. <laughs> it sure can. And I, you know, I, I was thinking back when I, I first started, I was um, talking about like a machine learning feature, right? Building a feature using some sort of mathematical model. And uh -huh. I was talking to um, someone else and we were talking about features, but we were talking about completely different things <laughs> <laughs> because it's just, it's a very common word and you can use it so many different ways. Right. And uh, we had a huge laugh about it because, you know, about 15 minutes into the conversation, we were like, wait a minute. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm always thankful for those conversations because it reminds me that, you know, 
probably 80% of the stuff that I'm talking about that seems, you know, Captain Obvious, isn't everyone a psychologist, uh, is, is not so. Um, and, and I love how much patience and, and time it takes to really get on the same page. I think I don't know or what do you mean are some of the best things that you can say in conversations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the thing you're most excited to work on next? Like what do you see as like the next big problem? Oh my gosh. So I am actually going to be giving a talk at RSA this year. And Ooh, congratulations. Am, yeah, thanks. And th- this is like my third or fourth year trying to get in. So I'm pretty pumped about it. Not real excited that it's virtual, but I digress. Um, <laughs> and one thing that I really believe in, and I'm not sure people are ready for this, by the way, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> is that all of the behaviors that we observe in our employees and the purple people we, we work with and whatever it's not really a reflection of who they are. It's a reflection of the culture of the company. And um, this year's theme is resilience. And everybody wants to know, you know, what makes an organization resilient. And I, I keep coming back to the fact that uh, organizations that have people who are resilient are more resilient. So when we start seeing these bad behaviors, like a lot of violations, when we start seeing tons of mistakes and, and things falling out of line, how can we take that knowledge of your employee's behavior and start to understand things that you need to change within your organization to make it better. Um, And that's, you know, sort of a teaser. Um, I do think that the reason people might not be ready for that is because it's, it's a corporate responsibility here. It's sort of shifting the blame from individuals onto, you know, bigger picture things. So um, I'm, I'm going to do a, a big talk about that. And um, I'm actually going to be drawing from a little bit from the classification system that we were talking about, along with a few other uh, more cybersecurity oriented models to see if I can blend everything together into magic. Uh, gosh, I think I, I titled it Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, Human Behavior Reveals It All. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So, you know... Um, I'm super excited about that. And and I do think that like really harnessing the power of understanding people to not only make your security better, but to make your organization stronger and your organizational culture stronger is like, it's the thing that I am super hype about. That's awesome. I think we have to end it right there. I mean, I I can't wait for this talk. So yeah, congratulations. And we'll stay tuned for, you know, later this year when it comes out. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Thank you so much. This was so much fun.